Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Kristen Green, author of the best-selling book, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, speaking on the topic of segregation of black and brown girls in schools. Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Um, I was wondering if maybe you could share with our audience a little bit about yourself and what brings you to the table to have this discussion with us today. Well, sure. Um, I grew up in Prince Edward County. Um, I attended a segregation academy there, although I didn't know that's what it was when I was going growing up. I, I knew it as the private school in town. I became a journalist and moved to the West Coast, away from Virginia, away from the South, um, and then realized that the story of my hometown was probably the most interesting story of my life, and I, I really couldn't even describe it to you in a few sentences. Um, I didn't I didn't understand the history of my own hometown, and I got really interested in narrative uh, writing, and I thought this the story of my hometown would would make a great uh, narrative. A, a book really hadn't been written about what happened in Prince Edward County, mm-hmm. um, and so I decided to to try to go back and tell that story. Could you speak a little bit about the history of segregation in Prince Edward County? Um, I mean, I think segregation in Prince Edward is similar to segregation in, in the country in that segregated schools have a long history in the U.S. Um, in 1851, a young black girl, 16-year-old, Barbara Johns, led a walkout to protest the conditions of the only black high school in Prince Edward County. Um, she had seen the white school down the street and knew it was much nicer and had many resources that the black high school didn't have. For so long, black students hadn't had access to a high school that when the county had finally built a black high school, they got and provided busing for them in this very rural county. Um, they were overrun with students who wanted to attend. And so this, they quickly outgrew the school that had been built for them. And so for years, black, black parents had been asking for a new school. Um, and the county hadn't built a new school, but instead they had added these tar paper, what were called tar paper shacks. They're kind of like chicken shacks hmm. um, behind the school that students were attending classes in. And of course, you know, they smelled like tar, um, on hot days, on cold days, you know, the students who were seated to come on the edge of the classroom were freezing, and those who were around the big coal uh, fireplace in the middle were too warm, and coals could kind of pop out of the stove onto them. And so they didn't have bathrooms, you know, they just were not adequate um, classrooms. And Robert Johns became aware of this, and she became aware of how much better the white school was and she decided to lead a walkout to protest the conditions and and all the students at Bowdoin High School followed her out that day and um, her action attracted the attention of the NAACP who already had their eyes on on Prince Edward County Um, and they ended up coming to Prince Edward to meet with Barbara Johns and some of her fellow uh, walkout leaders to talk about next steps um so they gave this, you know, after meeting with the students and realizing that they were, you know, really 
devoted to their cause and, and seeing that they had the support of their parents, the NAACP told the students that they were willing to take on their case, but only on the condition that they would seek um, integrated facilities and integrated schools for the county rather mm -hmm. than equal facilities. Because a year earlier, the NAACP had moved away from this idea of equal facilities and had decided to seek integration in all facets of public life. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where, that's where it kind of started in Prince Edward County. I mean, obviously, you know, segregate, segregated schools were a fact of life around the country, and black and brown students has always suffered in that situation because not as many resources were allocated to their schools. And they you know, historically didn't have the same level of, of education available to them that white students had. And so, you know, this, for a long time, the idea had been to try to get equal facilities. And that clearly, you know, just hadn't worked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, within, I think that you've hit on this, but, you know, the defining segregation as it relates to access to education. Um, but... You know, from what you have researched, what you have seen, you know, what are the some of the real daily impacts that segregation had on access to education for black and brown students? I mean, it's kind of like I said that they, for a long time, students couldn't get, you know, couldn't go as far in school as white students could. Um, you know, it took many years for for them, for county leaders to add on additional grades at the high school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for their education was just limited in the number of years that they could attend school for a long time. You know, the white kids only had one high school as well, but I mean, when you look at, at like the number of students that they could accommodate, you know, the Prince Edward School was just so much smaller. And you just think about how limiting that was mm -hmm. for black students. And, and to not have buses for many years. I mean, this is an incredibly rural county where people come from far away and parents are predominantly farmers. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, that they would have, have a car or that they would be able to, you know, provide transportation to their students was ridiculous. And that was, you know, that all seems really intentional, um, not providing busing. For, for black children for many years. So those two things, you know, being able to have a school that was big enough to accommodate them and have a school that provided, you know, through 12th grade, and then providing busing, those were really two huge things that um, would enable black students to have better access to education in Prince Edward. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're asking. <laughs> no, I think that that's great. And that kind of leads me to, you know, the question or kind of the point, you know, when Brown versus Board of Ed Education was passed, um, there seems to have been a lot of ideas that it passed and then integration happened. Is it, What was your experience with that? <laughs> as far as well, Let's back up just a little bit in regards to Prince Edward. So, so you have the Barbara Johns walkout leading to a case, a Prince Edward case, right? Mm -hmm. Well, white leaders in Prince Edward had said, don't file this case. We'll build you a school. And they went ahead and built a school. Yet black 
parents, you know, move and black leaders move forward with this case with the NAACP. Well, that case ended up becoming one of five cases under the umbrella Brown v. Board of Education. Okay. And it actually was um, the case that brought the most plaintiffs and the only student plaintiffs, right? Because parents were, were the plaintiffs in the other cases. Um, so, you know, people in Prince Edward took that really personally, that, that, that the case had been filed and that it was pursued and that it became part of Brown. And they really believed that in Prince Edward, white leaders believed that the county would be held up as an example and forced to desegregate early. And so they were, they were really fearful about what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a bigger picture, like the idea when we, you know, we see that iconic image of a mother, a black mother and child sitting on the steps of the Supreme Court holding a newspaper announcing the Brown decision. And we all think, oh, okay, yeah, the Brown decision. Wow, that was like what a huge deal that was that changed, that integrated schools, right? And we think overnight that's what happened. And a lot of a lot of people, even attorneys who worked on the cases, thought that this was going to resolve a lot. This mm-hmm. was gonna, you know, this was the change that we needed. But the way that the decision was written provided so much gray area about how that was actually going to be implemented. Um, that it actually required a follow-up uh, decision, which um, happened, you know, happened a year later. But mm-hmm. the problem was that it just didn't stipulate when this would ha- have to happen. There was no deadline, and so it really, um, it, the burden really fell on the back of black parents and families to file suits against a school or a school district requiring them to desegregate. A, a lot of places just didn't, you know, do this on their own mm-hmm. of the goodness of their hearts. You know, they just didn't. There was incredible pushback um, from white leaders to to not do this. Um, and Virginia in particular took a stance of the, the Byrd administration here. Senator Byrd from um, Virginia just didn't like this idea and, and promoted um, massive resistance. He believed that if Virginia pushed back to the Brown decision, that the rest of the South would also push back and that, I don't know, I guess that it wouldn't be, <laughs> somehow it wouldn't be implemented. Um, and that was a, you know, Virginia leaders embraced that and, and passed legislation to, to try to resist, as he had suggested. So, like, within that resistance, um, you know, you spoke about that they, instead of integrating, they made a decision to privatize and shut down the public schools. Could you? Yeah, well, Virginia at first, so the kind of the larger picture in Virginia is that the legislature there passed laws that made it legal for the governor to shut down any schools or school districts that attempted to desegregate. Um, and so in eight, late in 1858, he, he was doing that in three localities. He shut down schools. Um, and those communities look pretty different from Prince Edward. I mean, Prince Edward is rural. It's pretty poor. It's a pretty even mix of blacks and whites. It's not too far from the North Carolina border. 
you know, it's it's more Southern Virginia. Mm-hmm. But some of these other communities, I mean, I'm thinking about Norfolk in particular. I mean, you think about all the military families who who lived there who were not going to, they'd lived, you know, all of the world. They're not going to put up with this bowl of like, of not having school, of having their schools closed on their kids. Mm-hmm. So some of these communities pushed back to the idea. And ultimately, um, a decision was handed down that, that, the state had to step away from massive resistance. It was ruled unconstitutional. And so the governor stepped back from that decision and those schools were all reopened. And that was in February of 1859. Well, Prince Edward wasn't part of that. You know, they still, they had not been, they had not started to desegregate there because um, they hadn't been required to. Right. Yet I was talking a little bit about, you know, the, the background of that, that, of privatizing there, the idea of, of possibly closing the public schools in Prince Edward had been floated around within a few months of the Brown decision being handed down. Like the local newspaper um, editorialized about that idea, and white leaders created this group known as the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberties that um, pr- was promoting this idea of 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 uh, pushing back to integration. So this, I, so for five years, you know, since the Brown decision, there had been no movement on, on integrating schools in Prince Edward, but there had been this, you know, preparations for the possibility that they might one day have to. Mm-hmm. So the, the board of supervisors there had actually gone to month to month funding of the schools because they wanted to be prepared. If they were forced to desegregate, they could, you know, promptly cut off funding. That was one of my findings that really blew my mind. And they had already started to collect pledges to put together a private academy. Now, segregation academies, as I call them, um, weren't like a huge thing yet, but there already were some open, you know, in Virginia, and this would become a trend later. And so they had this, there were some other models around the state that they could go look at and kind of get an idea about how they might do it. And the concept was to use, you know, church buildings and, and social clubs, um, stuff like that as places to, to house classrooms. And so they were, they were coming up with these ideas before, you know, they were ever forced to desegregate schools. You had indicated that it was 1859, but I'm guessing you meant 1959? Yes, 1959. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The book I'm working on now, my, my new book is based in the 1850s, so Whoops. I'm uh, bouncing around. <laughs> I was like, I might be wrong, but all right. Yeah, cool. yeah, 1959. <laughs> so... So the Brown decision is 1954, and a federal court requires Prince Edward to desegregate its schools in 1959, right? And so after that decision is handed down, you know, the the time has come for Prince Edward to act. And they do, you know, follow through on their promises not to integrate. Then they go ahead and cut funding. Um, The Board of Supervisors there, the governing body, votes not to fund the public schools, which essentially closes them. And so the school doors were were locked. I mean, they even locked and chained the playgrounds. Trash was left, like, in the trash cans, you know. Buses were rolled into the lots, and lock was put over the bus. Wow. <laughs> around the, the whole bus yard. I mean, everything just came to a halt, just as it was. And, um, 
And so people had to scramble to figure out what to do for their kids. Um, these white leaders just launched into action. They already had all their pledge cards. Um, and so, you know, they, they created a leadership team and hired more people and went to look at other schools and started getting commitments from local churches and social clubs to be able to use their classrooms. And local business leaders would donate resources and they would come, businessmen would come at night and help, you know, build desks and whatever they needed to do to create, to set up classrooms within a few short months of the decision being handed down. It was handed down in, um, I want to say the early summer or it must've been late spring or early summer. And so they wanted to be able to, to open in September. So they had to really, you know, get a move on to figure out how to do this, but they were totally committed to this. And the idea was that this would be a school for all the county's white children um, and that it would be free that first year. They were able to, to pay for that with with donations. And, and, you know, people who sympathized, people around the South and around the U.S. that sympathized mm-hmm. with their situation sent in donations. So there were donations of books rolling in, of cash, you know, every toilet paper, the things they needed were coming in. And they, and they also, you know, didn't hesitate to steal in my, my word, steal public resources from the, the public schools. I mean, they obviously, these were all the white leaders of the town, so they had access to people with keys to the mm-hmm. public school buildings. So they were literally stealing the resources of the public schools in order to open their, their private school. You know, with any type of privatization, you know, you know that comes from individual pockets. Right. And, you know, like I'm wondering... How did that impact, you know, the uh, the economy of Prince Edward County? You know, meaning, um, you know, individuals who were, you know, paying taxes anyway, but then they had to additionally come up with the money for the private schooling. And, you know, some of that funding probably was taken away from other areas of the community and then looking at, you know, you have mentioned in your book that the, you know, a lot of families were sending their kids away or they were moving away themselves. And yeah, well, I mean, I, they cut taxes because they were like, well, we're not funding our schools. We'll just, you know, <laughs> oh. that was a nice little bonus. Huh. Um, so that was one thing that happened. But I mean, the, the economy of Prince Edward County has been permanently affected by that decision. I mean, it was such a bad decision mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, people don't want to move to a place that doesn't have public schools. And we can kind of touch on this later, the current situation. But, like, you know, that's had had huge lasting impacts. I guess, I mean, black, a lot of black families didn't have the ability to move away. Um, you know, they... They were often farming for a white family, and the way that worked is the white family would have the, you know, the store where the black family would get credit issued to them, and then when they did, you know, when mm-hmm. they needed something, they could could go to the store and get it. But it was applied to their wages, and so they were caught in a in a cycle where they really were never, you know, able to just pick up and move. 
So, and, and I think the, you know, economic threats were out there, like for, for black people who pushed back, you know, there was the worry that they wouldn't be able to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the economic impacts were, were definitely more, you know, attuned to black people who didn't necessarily have money to pay for their kids to go to private school either or have, you know, not that there was an option in Prince Edward, but there weren't like other great options for them. So they were, you know, the most affected by this, that the socioeconomics made it so that it was really difficult for them to move away. Um, There weren't great options for them, you know, affordable options for them to send their kids somewhere to attend school. And, and they were really like threatened economically by any kind of protest that, that they would do to this school closure. So they were really like locked locked down. They didn't have a lot of options. Um, so I mean, that's the major impact I see economically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, as you said, like you know, when we kind of close out, you know, we'll touch on you know some of the the current manifestations of the actions back then. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting is, you know, you speak about several instances of extreme measures that black and brown families took to ensure that their children were educated. Um, In particular, I, I remember you speaking about, uh, a father who rented an abandoned house, I think, and that he yeah. they they would. Could you talk a little bit about those experiences? About what people, the steps that they took. Yeah, I mean, and there was a lot of different approaches. Well, let's just make it clear. So when when the schools, when the public schools closed in Prince Edward County, mm-hmm. they closed all schools, white and black schools, right? And so white leaders start this private academy with the idea that all white students are going to go to that. Now, they they offered to help black families start a private school system. I, I don't think that was a genuine offer, but they acted like it was a genuine offer. Mm-hmm. But the problem with starting any kind of private school for black children would have been that going against what they were trying to accomplish. Right. So that really wasn't an option. Um, Reverend Francis Griffin, who was the local leader of the NAACP and played a really active role in the case there, uh, came up with the idea of doing these like training centers in the basements of churches, but they weren't like a school and that the teachers weren't necessarily certified teachers. It wasn't an all day kind of thing. It wasn't regimented in that way. It was the idea was that they could at least uh, keep kids engaged in learning in some way, but you know, they didn't, students didn't go every day and they didn't go for a full school day. So it really didn't look like school, mm-hmm. um, but that was an option for people. I mean, the problem is in a place like Prince Edward that's so rural and so poor, like many people had not traveled out of Virginia before, right? Mm -hmm. And some had never traveled out of Prince Edward County. So people in that situation didn't really have a lot of options, um, you know, in Prince Edward. So there were families that just, you know, took their, left all kids out of school. Now, to be like clear, Nobody was sure how long schools would be closed when they closed in 1959. I mean, Mm. no one could have predicted that the schools would have been closed for five years. I mean, that's just, like, even the NAACP leaders in Richmond 
had no, like believed that they would reopen them in 59. They didn't, they thought this was a stunt. They didn't think that like that county leaders would actually go through with it. So if you think about it, like if we're looking back on decisions people made, we're, we're making them in hindsight, knowing that the schools were closed for five years. Mm-hmm. So parents didn't have that information, but it was really important to parents of, of say juniors and seniors, you know, who are so close to graduating that their kids be able to get a diploma. Because if you imagine how much a high school diploma means now, well, it meant even more then mm-hmm. for a black child to have a diploma from high schools. It's really important. So people who had some means and and who were comfortable with the idea of like leaving the state, some sent their children um, to Kittrell College, which was a school, um, an AME school in just over the border in North Carolina that had had already taken on some high school students and agreed to take on. Um, they eventually took on like sixty students from Prince Edward County to to help them finish school to graduate. Um, and so some students went there. Another option for parents was to put their kids in school in adjacent counties. And the student you were talking about whose dad rented um, a home in an adjacent county, he, he let his um, – he watched his children walk to a training center three miles each way for two years. And he finally just got fed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worked for the railroad, and some of his white colleagues helped him to rent a house in an adjacent county. Um, and it was a ramshackle house, but he set out to make it look habitable. Um, his <laughs> wife you know, sewed curtains for the front windows. They cleaned up the front yard. They repaired all the broken glass. And it wasn't until the school year was about to start that his daughter realized that they actually weren't going to live in the house. They were going to keep living in Prince Edward where they lived. But the dad on the way to his job at the railroad would drop the children behind school, behind the house, <laughs> behind this house in the adjacent county. And tell them they weren't to go in because the house was so unsafe that he didn't want them like sitting around inside the house. He said they weren't to to enter the house until they heard the school bus roaring down the country roads. And then they could walk through the back door, through the house, out the front door and like up the steps to the bus. And they were never to tell anyone that they didn't live there. And before you knew it, there were like 21 kids getting the bus there. The bus drivers would just laugh and joke that they couldn't all be related, but they never told their secret, from what I can tell. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of parents who sent children. You know, if, if families had had a sibling, you know, an aunt or an uncle that, that moved to the north, um, or maybe an older child who had moved to Philly or New York or Boston, then some of these children you know, were given the opportunity to go attend school in those places. They would just move to live with a relative. Um, and the Quakers stepped in and found homes, people who offered up their homes for children to attend school. Um, not a huge number, but they but they did help set up some kids. And they even, some, some of these black children even went to live with white families in Ohio, which is oh wow inconceivable. But yeah, so there were a lot of different routes it took. I mean, we hear stories of teachers who got jobs in, a, in adjacent counties and would take kids with them as they drove across the county line. The kids would like duck in the back seat so they wouldn't get caught because the adjacent counties like, you know, had varying uh, ways that they looked at the Prince Edward situation. Some were okay with it, you know, would look the other way and some didn't want those kids in their schools. So mm-hmm. 
it was really kind of complicated about, you know, what people did. And it depended a lot on, you know, how many kids they had, if they wanted each kid. You know, one family I knew that had, uh, I think they had 21 kids. They had some crazy number of kids. Um, I just didn't want any kids to be treated differently. And so everybody just stayed home. You know, everybody worked um, and helped out. And, and it really mattered how old you were when the schools closed. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that I had kind of heard all the stories, you know, about what people's experiences were. And then I met a kid who was five when the schools closed. And I, I was like, oh, my God, I never thought about someone like him who mm-hmm. hadn't even started school and wasn't able to start until he was 10. So he missed all of that formative training of, you know, how to write and, you know, learning learning his alphabet and learning his numbers and, you know, how to read. He really missed those crucial years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically just spent those years playing, playing outside. But older kids went to work, and then, you know, there was not much chance they were going to go back. Uh, Most of them didn't go back after the schools closed, so, I mean, after the schools reopened. So it it really, you know, the experiences differed vastly, but but they were all really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like, so kind of shifting gears a bit, I'd really, you know, I want to kind of look at the relationship piece. And you know, given that families, you know, either, you know, had to leave or, um, you know, you talked about how, you know, some of the the older students were sent to live with white families or as far as Boston. And how, like, how did that transform the community relationships, the family relationships? You know, I mean, that was a really tough one because I realized when I was interviewing people for the book that some family members had never all sat down and kind of talked about together what they had individually been through, you know, Mm -hmm. because some families did different things with different kids, you know, based on their age and based on the parents' resources. And so when I would be interviewing people, sometimes they were telling me this was like the first time they'd really like told the story to anybody and that they hadn't even shared this with their own siblings. And that blew my mind. But it also, like, really illuminated, like, how painful, you know, how traumatic that history was and how raw those feelings still are about what happened. Um, I mean, it separated families overnight. Like, one of the families I wrote about, the two oldest children went um, to Kittrell College. And so they, you know, within a, within a few weeks of the decision, they were heading off to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the third child in line was also a high school student, but she um, you know, wasn't as old as her siblings. And so her parents decided that she should go to the adjacent county for weekdays to live with her grandparents on weekdays mm-hmm. so that she could attend school there. And those children just talked to me, now, now grown adults, grandparents in their own right, um, talked to me about how painful that was to to go from being like this nuclear family with a vibrant household to like overnight like never being with their siblings again except for you know like Christmas, uh, Christmas visits or Thanksgiving visits mm-hmm. things were never the same for them um, and I wrote you know a little bit about um, Elsie Lancaster who served as a, a housekeeper for my grandparents and then later for my parents and about her her decision to send her own daughter 
to Boston to live with Elsie's sister. I mean, Elsie only had one child, her daughter Gwen, and she didn't want to send her so far away, but she wanted, but her daughter Gwen was so bright and she wanted her to have an education. She didn't want her to have a life like Elsie had, you know, she wanted more for her. Um, and she had kind of hoped that, that Gwen might be able to go somewhere closer like Philadelphia, but, but ultimately Gwen, you know, felt closer to the relatives in Boston and chose to go there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, overnight Elsie went from being, from mothering Gwen, on a, you know, a daily basis to, to being, you know, to not being a mother the way she wanted to be, you know, not being able to tuck her daughter in at night and make her her lunch each day and cook her dinner. You know, she just, she didn't have, she never had that relationship with her daughter again. And, you know, and I think, and they didn't have the closest relationship. And I, you know, you can, it's easy to read into why, mm-hmm. you know, these were, this was real trauma for children to be, you know, ripped away from their parents. You know, it was in their, their parents believed it was in their best interest for them to attend school, but it, it changed, it happened quickly and you know and it was these separations were real and it sounds like um you know much of what you learned and experienced was just a disintegration of community culture you know and i'm wondering you know thinking about how so you know from an an eye centered lens how did the you know the events within Prince Edward County affect you and your relationships growing up in that community well i mean i was just blissfully unaware <laughs> um you know I grew up in a really white world. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't know this history. Um, and I didn't know what I was missing out on, but I, I basically grew up knowing only white people. I went to, to school with only whites. I, you know, attended church with only whites. I, you know, I might've shopped in the grocery store with black people, but, but most of you know, I played on sports teams with only whites. You know, it was like a very segregated world. And I went to college, like, extremely naive. I didn't, I wasn't aware of what I'd missed out on um, or why I'd missed out on it. But, you know, it, it changed, it, it affected my whole life. And I really had to kind of consciously decide that, you know, consciously realize what, what I what had happened in my town and consciously decide to, to pursue kind of a different, more integrated, more diverse life. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, moving, I think moving to California. That'll like, do it. That, that did it. <laughs> so, and it changed my worldview without, you know, without, in ways I didn't intend or expect, but you know, becoming a journalist certainly like made me aware of what my childhood had looked like and, you know, the many ways I experienced privilege. Um, and it made me more curious and empathetic. And those things kind of led me to move to California and, um, you know, just be more aware of the ways that a more diverse life was a richer one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, gosh, it's hard for me to even say how, how much it affected my life, but I know it did, you know, and I, I know that I consciously don't want that for my children, and I'm, I'm actively pursuing ways to, you know, a, a, a more integrated life for them. Do you remember the time that, you know, the, the time period that you kind of had that aha moment where you realized that you, you know, all of the history that you're speaking about and that you were living, you know, a parallel life to what was going on. Like, what kind of emotions did that bring up for you at the individual level? You know, I don't think I really realized it till I was, I mean, fully realized it till I was working on the book. I knew that there was like, like I was basically taught to believe that the private school was better, but I didn't know like what that was about, you know, and I didn't know that it stemmed from this place of excluding. Well, I didn't know it stemmed from, you know, belief in white supremacy, mm-hmm. that white people were smarter and better. And I didn't know that, that, you know, it had been so conscious that, that it had sprung from, from the desegregation order that the county had received. I didn't know that, that the school was founded with this racist belief. So I don't think any of that I was really conscious of, you know, fully conscious of until I was working on the book. Um, it was, I was super sad working on the book. I mean, part of it was that I realized that my grandfather had been, you know, a member of that group I talked about, the, the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberties. And so he went from being someone who was involved with a private school board, which I could you know, I could really normalize in my mind because such a small community mm-hmm. and, you know, and he was a town leader. I could like, that made sense to me, but, but learning that he had been a member of the defenders that, that didn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't erase the blame for that. Um, and so I was really saddened that my own family had played a role in school closures. Um, and I was sad that I had attended this school without ever really understanding its history or or the history of my hometown. I mean, to not be taught about my county's role in Brown v. Board through mm-hmm. my whole high school education and never even learning it in college just kind of blows my mind. Um, but just, you know, as I made friends of different races when, when I lived in college and then, you know, living on the West Coast, um, I just realized how much I had missed out on that. Like there was a whole half of my town that I, like that I didn't know. Like Elsie Lancaster, the woman I talked about who, um, who worked as a housekeeper for my grandparents and my parents. Like she was one of the a handful of black people that I knew in town. I never like, you know, I never was in black spaces when I was in high school. So I didn't ever go to a black church. You know, I didn't, I rarely stepped foot in the public schools, so I had this, like, level of discomfort that I also had to, like, kind of work through because it just hadn't been my experience. But mm-hmm. most of all, it was this underlying sadness that I had been denied this opportunity to know so many people and and how, you know, life-changing that would have been for me to, to not have such a narrow lens, um, while I was in high school to have known, 
you know, a wider variety of people with different life experiences. You know, they weren't all white and not that we were wealthy, but, uh, you know, white, middle, middle class ish <clears throat> to have, have known a, a wider range of people mm-hmm. really informed my worldview as a child. And so I was just sad that I missed that chance. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of given what you've touched on, I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts about, is it possible for black and brown girls, children, to have an equitable experience in education, um, you know, fully integrated? And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, as you're talking about that, you know, the history of your own county was omitted from any type of history literature um, as you were moving through. Um, Like, can, you know, it kind of, you know, thinking about how students are experiencing the, you know, the history books and their, in history books are predominantly written about white history. Yep. You know, and so, like, can it be a fully equitable experience if, you know, the history as, you know, the broad entity it is, is not really being taught? Uh, no. (laughs) I don't know. I'm kind of dealing with this daily. I ended up, you know, meeting my husband in California. He's a multiracial man, so I I have two brown daughters, and so... And now I'm back living in Virginia, you know, the place mm-hmm. I came from. Um, and, like, they're in elementary school. And I've, you know, I I hear every night about the kind of stuff that they're learning in school. Um, and I don't think they're being taught these hidden histories. I mean, I, I think we have so much work to do on that because adults still really aren't aware of these hidden histories. I mean, Prince Edward is a perfect example. Like, people there were really angry about the book. And I think it's because we, like, we have the narrative we grew up with of what we think happened in our hometown, right? And, and like, this, my version of events when I wrote the full story of what happened in Prince Edward, it doesn't fit with the narrative that was in their mind. And I think it's, you know, the way we've taught slavery historically, you know, these are ex- the way we've taught about um, Thanksgiving and mm-hmm. the arrival of Christopher Columbus and the treatment of Native Americans. Like, it's it's none of it's being taught the way I want it taught still. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, my kids come home and I'm, like, trying to teach them a fuller version of history and supplement their reading with books um, and talking to them about current events because we know how relevant this is today and it's all bubbling back up again. I just, I feel like these hidden histories have to be taught to our kids. Um, So no, what they're learning, you know, to me is not making their education um, equitable. But I mean, I, I do feel like, I mean, both my girls are both in a really diverse school. Um, I mean, it is the elementary school they're in now is majority white, but they're, I think they're middle and if they stay in, in Richmond public schools, their middle and high school experiences won't look like that. And their, their preschool didn't look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I say diverse, I don't necessarily mean black and white. They actually have like a variety of races in the elementary school where they are. Um, but I think attending class with students from different 
socioeconomic backgrounds. There are students from other countries, students of a wide array of races, and um, there's you know transgender students. There's um, students that practice different religions than they do. You know, I think mm-hmm. all of this is is really a meaningful elementary experience for them. And, you know, we know that that black and brown students do better in, in schools with white students. And so I think, like, the work to be done with public education is getting more white families invested in their public schools and more comfortable with the idea of diverse schools, of, of truly desegregated schools. Like, you know, the news has shown us writers are doing a lot of work around this idea that that schools are resegregating um but we know that it's it's in the best interest of black and brown kids to be in school with white children and we know that white children i mean you can think of many ways that would benefit but they definitely aren't hurt by being in school studies have shown they are not hurt by being the performance isn't hurt by being in school with black and brown kids mm-hmm. and and being in school with a diverse group of students prepares them for the world so you could you know there's a strong case to be made that they also benefit um and so i think the work to be done is working on you know white parents on investing in public schools um and you know nicole hannah jones the reporter with the new york times magazine who is sort of an expert in segregation and resegregation she talks about how we define public it's all about it's about you know what does public mean to us, right? Mm-hmm. And thinking it's it's about our values, really. You know, we're going to have to change our values in order to get public education where we want it to be for our brown and black kids. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> A couple of last points as we um, wrap things around the conversation is Prince Edward County now. So you mentioned that folks were not, you know, that some folks were not too happy about the um, the book that you wrote and, or the content of the book. So, you know, are folks engaging in the conversations about the county's history of segregation or are they just ignoring it? Well, it's interesting. I think they've had, you know, they have more opportunities to have conversations now than ever. Um, the school that I talked about where the the walkout occurred, Moton High School, is now a civil rights museum. And it's really beautiful, and it tells the full story of what happened in Prince Edward County in regard to the school closings. They host regular brown bag lunches where where many of those affected by the school closings have come back to tell their individual stories, um, you know, in in a a setting that is comfortable to them and where they can get into some of the nuance, you know, there's enough events that it's not the repetition of the same stories, but we can hear new stories, mm-hmm. stories, you know, those siblings that have never shared what they went through because it's too raw, too painful, or can be brave enough to, to come back and, and share those stories. And, you know, there are some whites who still refuse to acknowledge this history, but there are plenty that are listening. You know, there are others that are really, there are newcomers to the county who are interested in learning about the history. There are two um, colleges there, a university and a college there, where a lot of the faculty and staff is really engaged. Um, and they've the museum has actually partnered with Longwood University mm-hmm. um, to tell these stories. There's 
they host an annual community dinner to support the museum. That's one of the most integrated events, or is the most integrated event I've ever seen in Fonville. So I, I do think that um, there are a lot of opportunities to, you know, to, to talk about this history, and it's just a question of when people are ready. I'm, I found working on the book that you can't really force you can't really force people into being ready for that. You know, they have mm-hmm. to kind of come to it on their own. But I am sure there are some folks who live in Prince Edward who read my book and were like, "Oh, I didn't. This <laughs> wasn't how I thought it went down." You know, because I I remember when I was doing research on the book, sitting with someone my age at a at a dinner who when I told her what I was, the work I was doing, she's like, and I said that it was founded, that Prince Art Academy was founded as an integration, or I'm sorry, as a um, segregation academy. She argued with me. And I'm like, I've been working on this book for years now. But I think there was really like, people didn't know what they didn't know. So there are, you know, if, if, you know, 10 people that I, white people I grew up with learned, you know, something about the history and realized like, wow, this is the role that white people played and what they did was wrong. You know, I think if we can get to the place where white people can acknowledge what my ancestors did was wrong, then we can try to move forward from that. I mean, I think there's a long way to go, though, because the impacts of school closures were so enormous, you know, on the black community, and they've had generational impacts. Yeah. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the negative effects are literally anything you can think up. I mean, literally anything you can imagine. So literacy, that's a huge one. Did mm-hmm. people learn to read? Like, if you don't learn to read, that affects your whole life. Um, it definitely affects how people feel about not just government, but schools and how they view educational experiences for their children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So that affects how supportive they are of um, how engaged they are in their descendants' educations, right? Um, and then, you know, on a more, like, on a, you know, a, like a personal level, it's like a lack of access to good jobs, which, you know, affects an ability to access wealth and save, the ability to buy a home. I mean... The impacts are enormous, and that's for people who who didn't spiral. Like, I mean, I'm not even including people who spiraled into like drug addiction or alcohol addiction because of all these challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, think about the debt people went into, or the number of jobs people had to pick up in order to send their kids to live with an aunt or an uncle in New York. I mean, it's you know, no one has like, I mean, we for so long we didn't talk about that, you know, the the generational impact on those people who were shut out of school. And I think it's, it's going to really take a long time for the community, the black community in particular in Farmville to, in Prince Edward County to recover from that. You know, thank you so now much. Now that everyone's depressed. No, no. <laughs> so we'll, we'll um, you know, we'll, we'll end it on an, an up note. I mentioned at the beginning, the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, leading social equity for and by black and brown girls and women. And that's aligned with the women's conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh um, in October. And one of the questions that we're asking everyone is, you know, could you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equity? Well, 
personally, I don't think all the weight should be on the shoulders of black and brown girls and women. Like, I mean, you have been doing this work for years, and I think that white women, and I don't know why men get left on, like, off the hook on this, but white women and men have a lot of work to do in thinking about how we define public institutions and getting beyond this idea of doing what's best for my child you know, rather mm-hmm. than all children. If we could get white parents invested in public school systems, I think that everyone would win. And, and I personally take my responsibility to educate white people in my community very seriously to let them know that a lot of the biases they have about, you know, their neighborhood public school are, are like, actually about race and little else. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I think that people who can, can write like black and brown girls and women who can write your stories, you know, either tell your own stories or tell some of these hidden histories. So they make it out into the public sphere. I mean, there are so many leaders, black and brown leaders whose stories haven't been told. Um, mm-hmm. These little hidden parts of our history that like need to be shared. So sharing these stories is a huge one. And I guess for learning, it's like reading deeply, you know, and making sure that you educate yourself about, about these hidden histories, you know, about knowing fully the history of where you live and of segregation there and go back even further in time and look at how slavery and uh, Reconstruction and Jim Crow laws, how that affected where your community is today. Like, you know, it's it's easy to look at the problems today and not connect them to the past, but the past really gives us a lot of clues about why we are where we are today. Mm-hmm. And lifting, it's just, it's becoming part of communities, you know, whether it's on social media, Twitter, great community for black and brown girls and women. Um if you feel comfortable on Twitter um, or in person, you know, or in mentoring, like mentoring someone else who's interested in learning more or, um, you know, you shouldn't have to educate white women and men. Um, but if, if you have the energy to take on a particular person who you feel comfortable with to help educate that person, yes. Or, or else lift up other brown and black girls and women around you who, who don't know these histories, who don't read as widely and help expose them to, to more of the, you know, the facts about why we are where we are today. Um, Cause I think all of us being educated is the key mm-hmm. to moving forward. I really do. And I think this history has just been pushed down for so long that it's going to take a long time to, you know, kind of to lift a veil on all that. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women, with our guest, Kristen Green, author of the best-selling book, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.